0: There's a story from some years ago about four priests that received a private audience with Pope St. Pius X. The first priest introduced himself by saying, Your Holiness, I am a scripture scholar specializing in the study of the Pauline epistles, and I teach in a seminary. May I have your blessing. And so the Holy Father blessed him. The second priest introduced himself. Your Holiness, I am a canon lawyer, and I head the judicial tribunal in my diocese. May I have your blessing. And so the Holy Father blessed him as well. The third priest said, Your Holiness, I am the diocesan chancellor, handling all of my bishop's civil affairs. May I have your blessing. And he also received a blessing from the Holy Father. Finally, the fourth priest stepped forward. Your Holiness, I have the care of souls. Meaning that he was the pastor of a parish. Before he could ask for the Pope's blessing, the Pope knelt before him and said, May I have your blessing. It's a beautiful story, and it illustrates an important principle of the church, that it exists fundamentally for the cura animarum, for the care of souls. People talk of the hierarchy of the church, meaning the relation of the lower to the higher clergy, from deacon to priest to bishop, and from bishop to pope. Lines of power and authority exist in the church for good reason. No human institution, even one founded by Christ and led by the Holy Spirit, can function without a constitutive order that demarcates authority and responsibility. Yet because of this, we are sometimes tempted to think of the hierarchy of the church trending in an upwards direction, To the higher levels of greater importance. But the increasing power of the office held at a higher level in the Church is only a reflection of the fact that such power is ultimately necessary to aid the immediate care of souls that is taking place on the lower level. The heart of the Church is not in the Vatican but in the hundreds of parish communities, hundreds of thousands of parish communities, just like this one, all over the world. The church is often called the oldest functioning monarchy. The office of the papacy is older than any currently existing head of state. And unlike most royal offices, the pope actually exercises genuine power, although often a lot less than people think. Yet he takes office as the service servorium dei, the servants of the servants of God. The church was birthed in the midst of the Roman Empire. A survey of antiquity at that time and before shows that fundamentally power was understood in such a way that the lower existed to serve the higher. In Plato's Republic, Plato dreamed of a system of government where the rights and dignity of all persons were subordinated to the good of the state. In the Roman Empire, everything was structured under the system of patronage. Those of lesser rank owed fealty to those of higher rank, and those of lower rank were granted privileges by those of higher rank in exchange, at the discretion of the higher the idea that individuals as such mattered at all was very foreign to the way that people thought. People were important only in relation to those who had more power or to their relationship to those with more power. If you were a family member or a client of a more powerful person, you mattered. If you were a slave or a peasant, you didn't. Yet in the church inspired by the gospel of Jesus Christ, a new way of thinking and understanding the dignity of the human person took shape. Jesus reached out to the poor and to the sinners and to the outcast. Recognizing a person's dignity despite whatever sin or social circumstance excluded that person from respectable society. It's why in the year 590, When St. Gregory the Great ascended to the papacy, he wrote his Rule of Pastoral Care. It's a fascinating book designed for those who have the cura amarum, the care of souls, but it can be read profitably by any Christian. It is a detailed look at how to minister to all different types of people, of different social classes, occupations, ages, psychological temperaments, and varying levels of Christian maturity for people who commit small sins and for people who commit grave sins. In a lot of ways, it anticipated some of the best insights of modern psychology. It shows that even at the highest level, the church was, as it still is, concerned about the good of the person and ultimately their salvation. St. Gregory's book was not a book on how to get people to give more money to the church collection or how to motivate them to volunteer for the church bake sale. It was about the pastoral love of souls. I don't think you will find anything like this work in the annals of world literature. It signaled a shift. That in Christianity, leadership is measured in terms of service in caring for the least rather than the most powerful. As Jesus said, "'You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so amongst you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave.'" I mentioned before the Latin phrase, cura animarum, to have the care of souls. The Jesuits have a similar phrase, one that is the motto of many Jesuit colleges and schools, including Georgetown. Cura personalis, meaning the care of the whole person. It is a way of living out the words of St. Paul, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We see that Jesus teaches this kind of love in the gospel reading. He says that if a person sins, go talk to them. Not take your revenge, not gossip behind their back, not cut them out of the picture. Talk to them, and implicitly, Jesus is saying, accept their apology if they offer it, and move on. But maybe the person doesn't accept this one-to-one correction. So then Jesus says, back up your intervention with two or three witnesses. It's still low-key, but you are hoping that the person will respond to the greater numbers and be convinced. Jesus says, if that still doesn't work, then inform the church. Which in this context would have meant the local Christian community. This would imply that the leaders of the church, such as the pastor and the other ministers, get involved. Again, trying to admonish the person and get them to accept that they need to amend their ways. In doing this, Jesus is demonstrating the principle of subsidiarity, a phrase that is used even today in Catholic social teaching. It was first defined by Pope Pius IX in his encyclical, Quadragesimo anno. One should never take away from more local communities the responsibility and power to handle their own affairs. When necessary, higher communities should aid and support, but never displace. Jesus is similarly teaching that it is always preferable for a problem to be handled on a smaller scale, on a more personal level. This is not just a principle of decentralization or an affirmation of the efficiency of local control. Maybe there would be some cases where it would be faster and more efficient to invoke the whole force of the church against the person, but that's not the way of Jesus. Rather, subsidiarity reflects the principle of what best serves the cura personalis, the care of the whole person. The gradually escalating response to the sinner is designed to safeguard that person's dignity, to not embarrass them any more than necessary, to allow them to feel they aren't being bullied or or coerced. Because we know that it will often take all of a person's energy just to admit that they are wrong and turn from sin. We don't want to make it any more hard for them than is necessary. We are concerned not just with how that person's sin might hurt us or hurt the church. We are fundamentally concerned for them, for the good of their soul. And that is why the final piece of advice for when the person will not even listen to the church should not shock us. Treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. That sounds harsh. But Jesus was known for his care and concern for Gentiles and tax collectors. He reached out to them. He dined with them. He talked to them when no one else would, because he loved them. When someone has moved into this phase of being separated from the church, yes, they now stand in a different relation. They are in need not so much of repentance from a specific sin, But they need fundamental conversion instead. They become objects of evangelization, but not any less objects of love, what we now call the new evangelization. The principle of love implies the principle of subsidiarity, because both are meant to recognize the dignity of the human person. By respecting a person's individuality and autonomy, The true care of souls means not not seeing others as things to be used or manipulated for our ends, nor as problems to be managed for the common good. Rather, persons are the greatest good, and the highest earthly realities, the objects of our love. To love is to will the good of another— As St. Paul says, love can mean no harm for that person. It is something that St. John Paul the Great made the centerpiece of his philosophy of the human person in his work, love, and responsibility. He said, A person is an entity of a sort to which the only proper and adequate way to relate is love. That is why Jesus taught That which you do for the least among you, you do for me. Or as Victor Hugo put it, To love another person is to see the face of God.